0: we will be picking up once again with uh, my series on 2 Corinthians tonight. Uh, since I preached from Hebrews back in March, it's been seven months since we've looked at 2 Corinthians. Uh, but we're up to chapter 10. We're looking at verses 12 through 18 tonight. Just to uh, refresh you a little bit on what's going on at this point, um, at the beginning of chapter 10, there's a significant shift in Paul's tone. Commentator Paul Barnett puts it like this. He says, it appears that, as the letter draws to its conclusion, Paul's appeal to the Corinthians becomes more intense emotionally. Like many an order and preacher, he has kept the most urgent and controversial matters until the end and dealt with them passionately so that his last words make the greatest impact on the Corinthians. The Apostle Paul begins chapter 10 by directly confronting some of the accusations his opponents have made against him. We looked at that uh, back in March. And then in verse 12, he shifts from responding to direct accusations to highlighting an important difference between him and his opponents. And so we'll begin there tonight, looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 12 through 18. Apostle Paul writes, Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another... They are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you, without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. This is God's word for us this evening. I said that in this passage, Paul is contrasting himself with his opponents. Uh, So we might start by asking what are his opponents doing wrong? What is Paul warning the Corinthians about when it comes to his opponents here? And we get the main concern he's raising at the beginning and the end of the paragraph. Paul tells us that they are commending themselves. They're measuring themselves by one another and then they're using that comparison to commend themselves. Paul says this is a problem. So we might ask, how exactly are they doing that, and what is the problem specifically? What's wrong with the way that they're commending themselves? Well, one problem that emerges we see in verse 18. Paul writes, It is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Paul is singling out here those who commend themselves, but whom the Lord does not commend. Those who measure themselves as being successful, but whom the Lord does not measure as being successful. In other words, one of the core flaws in those who commend themselves, those who Paul is talking about is that according to Paul, they're using the wrong measure. They're using different measures than the Lord is. If they come away with a commendable assessment of themselves, but Christ comes away with an uncommendable assessment, then there's something wrong with the assessment tool that they are using. So one problem underneath their self commendation is that they're using flawed measures. But another if we look a little bit closer is that they're measuring the wrong things. This needs to be teased out a bit because uh, we see it in verses 13 and 16 but it's it's tricky because Paul doesn't address what his opponents are doing directly but rather he describes himself and we're meant to take his action as being Somewhat opposed to theirs. So in verses 13 through 16, Paul talks about his area of influence that's been given to him. It's helpful to ask what exactly he means there. Paul is talking about the commission he's been given by Christ to minister to the Gentiles, a commission confirmed by the church. So in Acts 9 15, Jesus delivers this commission for Paul to go to the Gentiles. And then in Galatians 2.9, we read that that commission was confirmed by the leadership of the church. Paul makes the point here that he's merely doing the work that Christ has called him to do. The implication he's making is that his opponents are doing work that they had not been called to do. Not only that, but they seem to be trying to take credit for ministry work that they did not do, but that Paul had done. Now, in reading this and starting to get into it, we might uh, make the mistake of thinking that this sounds a bit like a a petty turf battle over ministry or who gets credit for what, but there's a lot more and there are significant things that are going on here. Not only are Paul's opponents using the wrong measures, they're measuring the wrong things because they're not measuring their progress in the work that God has given them to do. They're measuring something else. They're measuring their success in an area that God never called them to work at. And they're doing that because they're finding that, at the moment at least, to be an easier way for them to commend themselves rather than doing the real work that God has given them. As we unpack this, packet, this passage, uh, the problem of Paul's opponents uh, begins to emerge. They're living their lives commending themselves, and they're doing that by measuring the wrong things we said in their lives, and they're using the wrong measures to do it. They're measuring the work that God has called Paul to do rather than the work that God has called them to do. And they're measuring themselves by comparing themselves to one another rather than evaluating their work in light of Christ's standards. Now, as we start to think about this, as we read Paul's letter, it's easy for us to go after Paul's opponents in these letters, and in fact, we're obviously supposed to see the problems and what they're doing. But if we're honest. I think we can see that the Holy Spirit did not include these descriptions in the scriptures just so we could analyze what that group of people back then did that was wrong or even what some other group of people out there in the world are doing now. Now, the Spirit included these verses in part because we're to see ourselves or at least part of ourselves in Paul's opponents as well. We're supposed to see that there are ways that we share in their struggle. Because we, too, tend to live our lives commending ourselves. And we do it by focusing on the wrong things and using the wrong measures. So we see what it looks like in the case of Paul's opponents. What does it look like in our case? Uh, David Brooks, uh, in his 2004 book, On Paradise Drive, uh, describes how this can play out in our particular culture. Now, this is a somewhat long quote, but I think... Uh, he's sort of painting a picture of the diversity of our culture in this area and it can be somewhat helpful. So here's what he says. He writes, as you look across the landscape of America, you see something in our culture like a big high school cafeteria with all these different tables. The jocks sit there, the geeks sit there, the drama people sit over there, and the druggies sit somewhere else. All the different cliques know that the others exist and there are some tensions, But they go to different parties, have slightly different cultures, talk about different things, see different realities. The cliques don't know much about one another, and they all regard others as vaguely pathetic. Brooks goes on. He says, know thyself, the Greek philosopher advised. But of course, this is nonsense. In the world of self-reinforcing clique communities, the people who are truly happy live by the maxim, overrate thyself. They live in a community that reinforces their values every day. The anthropology professor can stride through life knowing she was unanimously elected chairwoman of her crunchy suburbs sustainable growth study seminar. She wears the locally approved status symbols, the Tibet motif dangly earrings, the Andrea Dworkin inspired hairstyle, the peasant blouse, the public broadcasting tote bag. She is furthermore the best outdoors woman in the Georgia O'Keeffe Hiking Club. And her paper on 20th century Hopi protest graffiti was much admired at last year's multidisciplinary outgroup research conference. No wonder she feels so righteous in her beliefs. Meanwhile, sitting in the next seat of the coach section of some Southwest Airlines flight, there might be a mid-level executive from a post-war suburb who's similarly rich in self-esteem. But he lives in a different clique. So he is validated and reinforced according to entirely different criteria and by entirely different institutions. Unlike the anthropologist, he has never once wanted to free Mumia. He doesn't even know who Mumia is. But he has been named Payroll Person of the Year by the West Coast Regional Payroll Professional Association. He is interested in college football and tassels. His loafers have tassels. His golf bags have tassels. If he could put tassels around the Oklahoma football vanity license plate on his Cadillac Escalade, his life would be complete. These people sit on the plane hip to hip and they would be feeling mutually superior if they gave each other a moment's thought. One of the great observations about this country is that here, everybody can kick everybody else's butt. The crunchies who hike look down on the hunters who squat in the forest downing beers and the hunters look down on the hikers who perch on logs smoking dope. The fundamentalists look down on the Jewish Buddhist Taoist liberals who think redwoods are a religious shrine. And the Jewish Buddhist Taoist liberals look down on the fundamentalists who think natural history museums are filled with evolutionist propaganda. As you may have noticed, Brooks continues, 90% of Americans have way too much self-esteem, while the remainder has none at all. Nobody in this decentralized, fluid social structure knows who is mainstream and who is alternative, who is elite and who is populist. Professors at Harvard think the corporate elites run society, while the corporate elites think the cultural elites at Harvard run society. Liberals think their views are courageously unfashionable, and conservatives believe they are bravely dissenting from the mainstream media. Most people see themselves living on an island of intelligence in a sea of idiocy. They feel their own lives are going pretty well, even if society as a whole is going down the toilet. They believe their children's schools are good, even if the nation's schools in general are terrible. Their own congressperson is okay, even if most of the others should be thrown out of office. Their own values are fine, even if civilization itself is on the verge of collapse. We all live in Lake Wobegon because we are all above average. We are all okay. It's the vast ocean of morons who are messing things up. Now, what is Brooks getting at with all of this? Brooks is sort of marveling at the variety of measures that our society offers us by which we can evaluate ourselves and the ways we can use them, in the end, to commend ourselves. Rather than just having a small list of options, we have a wide selection of criteria that we could adopt to measure ourselves and compare ourselves by one another. A wide range of things to measure, a wide range of measures to apply them to. And if one criteria doesn't make us feel as if we are superior to others, then we can find another one that does. The problem in all of this is, of course, not that people have different interests or concerns or jobs or social groups. The problem is our tendency to turn each one of those things into a way to measure ourselves by one another and then to commend ourselves. Rather than having just a few wrong things to focus on and measure, rather than just a couple of wrong measures that we could use, our society offers a wide range of ways to do that. You can pick which one you like. Focus your life on what it tells you to and then we can pat ourselves on the back for how much better we are than all the people around us. So what does that temptation look like for you? What are the things that you tend to measure to determine your worth? To commend yourself when you're compared to others in your life? What's the measure that you tend to use? Maybe it's your status in your career. You look at where you are or you look at where you're sure that you're going and you shake your head at those other people who are failing to advance. You measure your career compared to theirs and you commend yourself. Or maybe it's your performance in school. You look at your grades. You look at those who are not doing so well. You measure yourself by them and you get that feeling of how successful you are. You commend yourself. Maybe it's your family life, how your kids are doing compared to to a friend's children. Or maybe it's your home, where you're cooking or other things that you're doing for your family. Maybe it's your popularity, where you rank in the hierarchy of your peers. Maybe it's even your church at times, where you hear how things are done somewhere else and you feel that sense of superiority well up because we do things better. Maybe it's your politics. Or your values, or what you do in your spare time, what is it for you that you measure in order to compare yourself to others and commend yourself? We all have something, so what's yours? Whatever it might be, Paul is saying that it's a problem. Paul says that it's deeply flawed. And it's flawed, again, not because we shouldn't pursue these things, not because we shouldn't evaluate these things or because they don't matter. It's flawed because we're using these things in ways that were never meant to be used. None of these things were meant to be the basis on which we evaluate our lives. And even if they were, such verdicts on our lives were never meant to be reached by simply comparing ourselves to those around us. Paul is leading us to see the hollowness, the the empty meaninglessness of this approach. But if we step back and look at our lives, we have to admit that we do it. We tend to live our lives commending ourselves. And we tend to do it by focusing on the wrong things and by using the wrong measures. So if that's the problem that we see emerging in our text, if that's what Paul's opponents are doing, what, according to Paul, is the alternative? What is the solution for us? Paul shows us in our text tonight that we need to live for Christ's commendation and that we do this by measuring the work that he has called us to do and using his measures as we do so. Now, what exactly does that look like? Well, Paul shows us, I think, by example in our text. First, in response to his opponents who are commending themselves by measuring the wrong things, Paul tells the Corinthians that he is measuring the work that the Lord has called him to do. That's a lot of what's going on in verses 13 through 16. Let's let's look at it once more. Paul writes, But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others. But our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. I think if we're not careful, if we read Paul quickly, we can misread him as sort of disparaging any kind of work or even any kind of ministry that's not the sort of pioneer missionary evangelism work that he's doing. It can sound to us like Paul is saying that the kind of work that really matters is what he's doing. It's this evangelism to those who have never heard the gospel. He says in verse 14 that his confidence, that's what he means when he talks about how it's his boast, the thing he boasts in, his confidence is in the fact that he was the first to bring the gospel to Corinth. He says in verses 15 and 16 that his hope, his focus, is to extend that evangelistic work further. But why is that what Paul focuses on here? Is he telling us that that's all that should really matter for us? Well, of course not. That's not the point he's making. Paul here is looking at what Christ has called him specifically to do. We mentioned this earlier. We mentioned how we saw in Acts 9.15 that Christ had called Paul to the specific work of pioneer evangelism to the Gentiles. We said in Galatians 2.9 that the church confirmed that calling. Paul knows what his calling is from Christ, and that's what he's focusing on. Christ will have a somewhat different calling for each of his people. Paul knows that. He's not denying that in any way. But he also knows what Christ has called him to do. And so in verses 13 through 16, he's expressing his awareness that the, 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 the thing that will be measured in his life is how faithful he is to that calling that Christ has given specifically to him. What Paul is really doing in these verses is focusing on his specific calling. Beyond that, Paul also recognizes that he needs to use the right measure. He realizes, he says in verse 18, that his own measure of himself is irrelevant. He realizes, he points out in verse 12, that being measured in relation to others is ultimately meaningless. He knows, he explains in verse 18, that all that really matters is the measurement that Christ will carry out. It is Christ who will commend him or not. And that commendation, or the lack of it, will outweigh every other evaluation that he might face in this life. In some sense, we might think of Paul's approach here as an attempt to live in light of the future. The future in which Christ will measure and commend each of his servants. But As we realize that, as we think about that, we also need to admit that it's not an easy thing to live our day-to-day lives in light of that distant future reality. What does it look like for us to do that? I think I might have mentioned this in a sermon before um, My wife and I uh, enjoy sci-fi things, particularly quirky sci-fi comedy type things. And one of our favorite shows is uh, Doctor Who. Uh, It's a science fiction show put out by the BBC. It's about a human-looking alien with a time machine who travels through time and space, uh, usually with a human companion or two. Uh, The alien is known simply as the Doctor. His friend who travels with him in season five of the show is named Amy. Sometimes they travel into space and the future and they deal with aliens and things like that. Other times they travel back in time in Earth's history. And to be honest, even when they do that, they usually end up fighting aliens for some reason. It's just sort of what they do everywhere. That's what the show is. But there's one episode uh, in particular in which they go back in time and they they visit Vincent Van Gogh. Uh, Van Gogh, as you might know, uh, suffered from mental illness in his life. He was often frustrated and in pain. His art career didn't amount to much while he was alive. And then in 1890, he took his own life. It was only really after his death that he became famous. Well, in this particular episode of Doctor Who, the doctor and Amy travel back to visit Vincent van Gogh in June of 1890, uh, just a little while before he killed himself. They visit him, they befriend him. They, of course, fight an alien with his help. But that's not the part I want to talk about. I want to talk about what happens at the end. At the end of the episode, they're saying goodbye to Van Gogh, who is alone, who feels relatively hopeless that his art will ever amount to anything. And as they're about to go, the doctor gets an idea. He gathers Amy and Van Gogh, and he gets them into the time machine, and they shoot forward in time, to Paris in 2010. Once there, he takes Van Gogh to the Musee d'Orsay Art Museum in Paris. And as they walk through the different exhibits, Van Gogh marvels at each one that he sees. And then they walk into another room and this one is filled with paintings by Van Gogh. And this man who in his lifetime, according to the measurements around him, seemed to amount to nothing in his art This same man now sees his work hanging prominently in a world-class museum with people from all over the world marveling at what he's done. Uh, The doctor, intentionally standing with an earshot of Van Gogh, uh, calls over the museum tour guide and asks him, where do you think Van Gogh rates overall in the history of art? Uh, The tour guide, of course, doesn't realize that Van Gogh is standing right there, and he answers the doctor saying, well... That's a big question, but to me, Van Gogh is the finest painter of them all. Certainly the most popular great painter of all time, the most beloved. His command of color, the most magnificent. He transformed the pain of his tormented life into ecstatic beauty. Pain is easy to portray, but to use your passion and pain to portray the ecstasy and joy and magnificence of our world, no one had ever done that before. Perhaps no one ever will again. To my mind, he goes on, that strange wild man who roamed the fields of Provence was not only the world's greatest artist, but also one of the greatest men who ever lived. Van Gogh, hearing this, then bursts into tears. He thanks the man profusely, who is, of course, confused and doesn't really know what's going on at this point. And then the doctor and Amy bring Van Gogh back to his own time. As he steps out of the time machine, he says, this changes everything. I'll step out tomorrow with my easel on my back, a different man. Now, it doesn't shock us to hear uh, this fictional Van Gogh say that. But I want us to think about why that is the case. Why would this change everything for him? Well, it would change everything because that vision of future commendation, of future evaluation, that knowledge should recast how Van Gogh sees the present. In his day-to-day life, Van Gogh was tempted to let the world around him skew his view of his work. The world around him saw his work as mediocre or worse. Van Gogh often found himself trading his original artwork just in exchange for more art supplies. Measured by those around him, his work had little value. But from the perspective of 2010, from the perspective of the future, he could see what of his work had value. He could hear the future verdict on it right then and there. And that should inspire him. That should change things for him. That should enable him to live focused on the right things and using the right measures. And so it is with us. We live far too often in light of the verdicts and evaluations we hear from the world today. We live in light of how we evaluate ourselves with those around us. The Paul reminds us that we are called to live today in light of the future verdict that we will receive, the future commendation that we hope to hear from Christ. And living in light of that should change everything, just as living in light of the knowledge of his future success should have changed everything for the fictional Van Gogh in that Doctor Who episode. Now it would be sort of easy to end the illustration there to remind you not to live your life today by focusing on the commendations of this world, by measuring yourself compared to those around you, to live with the perspective of that final commendation like the fictional Van Gogh says that he will when he steps out of that machine and goes back to his regular life. But that episode has a little more before it ends, actually. The... Doctor and Amy drop Van Gogh off in 1890. They then get back into the time machine and go right back to the museum they had visited earlier in 2010. And Amy is excited. She's sure that what Van Gogh has seen will change his life. He won't end his life now, but he'll be inspired, and it will change everything. Oh, the long life of Vincent Van Gogh, she explains as she, she exclaims as she runs down the museum halls towards the Van Gogh exhibit. There'll be hundreds of new paintings, she says. The doctor tries to caution her that that may not be the case. They then get to the Van Gogh wing and nothing is really that different. They overhear the tour guide talking about Van Gogh's suicide in 1890 just as before. Why didn't this new knowledge change everything as it should have for this fictional Van Gogh? Of course, for one thing, we can Remember that Van Gogh did suffer from mental illness. That sort of throws a wrench in the illustration. But setting that aside, what were the other contributors? Why didn't it change his life in this story? I think there's something realistic in it because I think it would be the case for the same reason that the knowledge we have that our future judgment will come before Christ doesn't often change our lives very much. It's one thing to believe it for a moment. It's another thing to hold on to it. It's another thing for us to live it as a day-to-day reality. There's, oddly, something insightful, something realistic and profound even in this silly episode of sci-fi television. It's easy for us to say that we need to live our lives in light of the future commendation we hope to receive from Christ. It's another thing to do it to keep the vision of his future commendation in front of us and truly live in light of it. Doing that is hard. That's why so few do it. It's why Paul's opponents looked for temporal commendation instead. It's why we so often look for temporal commendation instead. It's why we look to whatever subculture or lifestyle group we may choose to give us an alternative set of criteria for measuring our lives. Because we can feel that commendation now. Whereas it's hard to live in light of that future commendation we hope for from Christ. Living our day to day lives in light of the future eternal commendation of Christ is difficult, but it's not impossible. The apostle Paul seems to do it in our text. So how do we follow him? How do we, as he encourages us in 1 Corinthians 11 1, how do we imitate Paul as he imitates Christ? For most of us, I think it requires a regular, maybe even daily act of setting eternal realities before us again. It requires the development of a habit, really, of reminding ourselves of those truths. We can think of that habit as maybe asking ourselves three questions on a regular, even daily basis. Three questions we need to ask, not because we don't know the answers to them, but because we need to remember the answers to them over and over again. So what might those questions look like? Well, first, we need to ask ourselves again, what is Christ calling you to today? It's a simple question, straightforward, but it's an important one. We can easily spend all our mental energy on what we hope to be doing tomorrow, Or what others are doing today. But that's not really the question that matters for us in our day to day lives. The question that really should matter to us is what is Christ calling us to today? That's why Paul keeps focusing on the specifics of his calling in our text. He's not going to let his main focus drift to work that others might be called to. He knows his mission. So, what does that look like for you? What are the ordinary, though often difficult, tasks that Christ has given you to do right now? How is he calling you to love and serve those around you? How is he calling you to live your life in loving obedience to him? What are the specifics of that calling? The world offers, as we said, many alternative callings. It urges us often to live vicariously through others and their callings. It urges us to envy others' callings. It pushes us to live mentally in the future instead of in the present. To follow in in, in Paul's footprints, we need to resist those temptations. We need to remind ourselves daily what our core calling is. So first, we need to consider what Christ is calling us to today. Second, we need to ask, what does Christ value in the work he's given you to do? What are his priorities in that work? Because even when we rightly identify our calling, we still face the temptation of evaluating ourselves by the wrong measures. Again, this is what Paul's opponents are doing. They're measuring themselves by one another. But it's not what Paul's doing. Paul reminds us, even when we've identified the call Christ has given us, that it's not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. This is hard because... The world provides many opportunities for us to measure ourselves by others. Christ, for example, might be calling you to care for your family today, to meet their needs. And if that's right, then that's a good place to start by identifying that. But in our setting, the Internet quickly provides you with a whole range of ways to measure yourself by others. Whether it's looking at the carefully crafted Instagram post of a friend's professional-grade craft time with their kids, which makes you feel terrible about yourself, or a shared news story about an incident or a trend in bad parenting going on somewhere else, which you can look at and feel really good about yourself because it's not about you. But how you stack up to your Martha Stewart-like friend or the parents featured in an outrage gossip piece is not really what Christ is concerned about. Christ values specific things in how you raise your children. He values how you love them. He values how you instruct them. He values how you direct and discipline them. He values how you communicate him to them. Of course, you're not going to do those things perfectly. No one does, no matter what Instagram says. But that's not even what we're talking about at this point. What we're talking about is, is that even what we're aiming for? Are we aiming for Christ's values or some other set of values in our day-to-day lives? As Paul reminds us, it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. The same thing can be true for our jobs. We know the work that we're called to do there, the tasks God has given us in his providence. But how quickly do we fall into measuring ourselves by others? whether we're comparing ourselves to a friend or coworker whose career seems to be cruising along much more successfully than ours is, leading us to feel down, or whether we compare ourselves to one who is not doing as well as we are, making us to feel good. Again, this isn't what Christ is interested in. Christ is concerned with whether we are serving faithfully in the tasks that we've been given to do. He's concerned with whether we're serving ethically. He's concerned with whether we are blessing those around us by the work that we do and by the way that we do it. He's concerned with whether we are faithful witnesses to him in how we conduct ourselves. He's concerned with how we conduct ourselves even when no one else is looking. Other measures offer themselves, but in the end, they are meaningless. It is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. He could go on and on, and think through the areas where the Lord values certain things in our calling. Our calling to be neighbors, our calling to be friends, to be sons or daughters, our calling to be church members, our calling to be involved with our civic society. Maybe even a calling we have at the moment to face a difficult trial or a season of suffering while others look on. We need to acknowledge the false measures that the world offers us in each one of those areas. And then we need to remind ourselves what Christ values, what he is concerned about. We need to remember again and again how little value there is for those who commend themselves and how much there is for one whom the Lord commends. So we ask ourselves what Christ is calling us to do today. We remind ourselves what Christ values in the work that we've been given to do. Third, we ask what it would be like to receive Christ's commendation. Here we use our sanctified imagination a little bit. Here we meditate even just for a minute or even just for a few seconds on what it would be like to receive Christ's commendation. What it would be like to stand before the king of the universe and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. What it would be like to receive praise from the one who made heaven and earth the one who knows you better than you know yourself. How would that make you feel? And it's important to think about that, I think, for a couple of reasons. One, because we've been talking about pushing back against the ways that the world encourages us to commend ourselves. And that's a difficult thing to do. And it's essential for us to see that we're not pushing that kind of commendation aside and replacing it with nothing, with nothing but hollow silence. Rather, we're pushing it aside in order to replace it with something far grander, something far more meaningful, something far more joyous. We're seeking instead the commendation of our king and maker. And his commendation, we can be sure, will send a thrill through our hearts that will more than make up for every self-commendation we could have accrued in this life. But a second reason it's important for us to think about this is that we need to keep in mind what kind of judgment we face in Christ. For those of us who have trusted in Christ, who have received his grace, who have trusted in his death and resurrection on our behalf for our salvation, we do not face a cold and exacting judge. We stand before Christ, our elder brother, who Paul reminds us elsewhere loved us and gave himself for us. We will stand before also our loving Heavenly Father, who has adopted us into his family. We stand before him with our sins forgiven, and Christ evaluates us us not like a picky bureaucrat holding a clipboard looking for faults. We're evaluated something more like a loving parent would do. A parent calling their child to do real things, to do difficult things even, but a parent also who is anxious to encourage, anxious to see the good, anxious to commend. He doesn't give gold stars out for nothing, it's not like that, but he is for us, not against us. He helps us and encourages us and longs to commend us. Paul lived his life with his sight set on that reality. He ruthlessly reminded himself what he was called to do, and he pushed aside competing callings no matter how attractive they might have seemed to him at the moment. He kept himself focused again and again, not on, what, not on how he compared with others, with those around him, but on how faithful he was being to what the Lord wanted to see in his life. And he strove forward by reminding himself of the crown that awaited him, the only crown that really matters in the end, the commendation of Christ. And those dynamics are not just true for the extraordinary life that the Apostle Paul lived. They're true for the ordinary lives that you and I live as well. Because despite all the false measures offered by the world, despite the false commendations or false accusations that so often bubble up from our hearts, in the end, Paul is right. It is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Amen.